Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 6. Let's pray together. Father, it is a privilege for us to continue to worship you, and we, we count today a particular privilege to open your word. You've given it to us as a gracious gift. We ask that you'd help us this morning as we worship you in the word, that you would bring forth a satisfying, uh, pleasing aroma to yourself as we humble ourselves before you. Help us to see clearly what you have done, the privilege that is ours through Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, for, for anyone in this room that's never trusted Jesus as their Savior, that even today during our time of looking at what you've done, you might draw them to yourself. I pray also, Father, for those that have trusted Jesus as their Savior and yet have not uh, been baptized in obedience to uh, what you've told us. We pray, Father, that there would be a, a clear, willing decision uh, to be baptized. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible is filled with symbols. In fact, our world is filled with symbols. There are some things that can be communicated this way. A universal symbol is the heart. Like Everyone knows what you're saying when you put a big red heart. It means love. It means uh, I love that or I love you. It means something having to do with love. It's a very clear symbol. A newer symbol that captures the thinking of someone who's hysterically laughing and can't control themselves is like what we call like the laughing, crying face. Maybe you've seen this on Facebook, or maybe someone has sent one of these to you on your phone. Sometimes people send them in a stream of them. They're really having a great time. It's the laughing, crying face emoji. Now, one of my favorites, if not my favorite, is the stunned, I can't believe what just happened or what I just saw face. Like that. It's like, uh-oh, this is not good. Well, Christianity is filled with symbolism as well. You can think of the symbol of the cross. What's coming to your mind as you think of the cross? The cross is a symbol of crucifixion, judgment, pain, the wrath of God being poured out upon a perfect spotless Savior. It is also a sign that would bring to our attention obedience. Jesus obeyed the Father, humbling Himself to the point of death, even the death on the cross. It's also a sign of victory. You notice that it is a, a cross that does not have a resident any longer. It's a sign of victory. So we have all of this symbolism that comes from the cross. And then, um, for many years, the ichthus was a symbol of Christianity. Now, you notice on this symbol, you've got the fish. The word ichthus is the Greek word for fish. And it simply was an acronym. Uh, Jesus, Jesus, Christos, Christ, Theos, God, Huios, Son, and then Soteria, or Soter, meaning Savior. Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. It was, a, it was a subtle symbol for Christians who were probably under fire 
of the government, that persecution was coming upon them. And so rather than putting a known symbol of the cross, they put the ichthus, and they, they had passed the word uh, theoretically that there, this was an acronym for Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. And so it was a symbol of Christianity. In fact, you've probably seen some of these on the back of a car. Maybe you even have a bumper sticker with a fish. It, it's symbolism. As we come to our, our Bibles, and particularly into our New Testament church, there, is a, a couple of, there are a couple of symbols that come in the form of ceremony, both of which are in our attention this morning. This morning, at the end of our discussion in the Word, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is filled with symbolism. The bread that we will partake of if we're believers and are willing to follow through with this. Uh, the, the bread is symbolic of Jesus Christ's sinless life. It's unleavened bread. It points our attention to some of the symbols of the Old Testament. Uh, a spotless lamb was to be brought. And then even further, as the Lord Jesus is brought onto the scene, born as a baby, and then ushered into his ministry. You'll remember John the Baptist saw Jesus walk on the scene and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so we look at the bread and we see the symbolism of a sinless Savior. We also notice that the, the bread is broken. Better stated, it's torn. Torn. And we start to see the symbolism of Jesus' body being torn, bruised for us. And then we have a cup, and the cup is filled with juice, and the, the juice is symbolic of Jesus' blood sacrifice. The fact that from his very veins issued forth saving blood. Was there something specific about and special about his blood? Yes, because it belonged to him, and he was sinless and spotless. The cup reminds us of Jesus' blood atonement. The symbolism is pointing to Jesus' suffering on our behalf. His sacrifice for us. Additionally, our participation in that ceremony is to point to our union with Jesus in His suffering. You'll remember one of the lines that comes up in 1 Corinthians 11 about our participation of uh, the Lord's Supper is do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We've got that, okay. And then it says... We do this and we proclaim his death until he comes. We're saying this death, this suffering, I have a part in it. I have a union with it. It's for me and it can be for you. We proclaim his death until he comes. The symbolism is there. Partaking, listen carefully to this please. This is important. Partaking does not provide for us participation in his suffering. In other words, someone could feasibly, at the end of our service, partake of the bread and partake of the cup and it not actually be a participation in the Lord's death and burial and resurrection. It points toward our participation. It does not bring forth our participation. Does that make sense? Symbols, what they do is they remind us of the substance of that symbol. There's a shadow, and then there's the 
substance. Jesus himself is the substance. What he has done is, in fact, reality. Jesus did die on a cross. Jesus did spill his blood. Jesus was buried in the tomb. Jesus was raised from the grave. When we partake in the Lord's Supper ceremony, what we're doing is saying, because of what Christ has done, I have a part in all of this. I am a participant in this. Now, during the first part of our study, we want to talk about another ceremonial aspect of biblical Christianity, baptism. Baptism. Baptism is a clear picture of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. The term baptism or baptize comes from the Greek word. It's really hard to say. Really? Are you ready for this really difficult word to say? Baptizo. Oh, you said, you said it was going to be hard. Well, it's because it's actually not translated. It's a transliteration. Transliteration means, okay, well, here's the original text. It's in Greek. And they take each one of the words and make it into the new language just by copying the words over. They didn't translate baptizo. They just transliterated it. Baptizo means to immerse. It means to, to place under. The, one of the illustrations in classical Greek of baptizo is with a pickle. <laughs> I know, you wanted to hear about pickles this morning when you came in. They would take a, a cucumber and they would put it in vinegar and whatever else that goes into that thing to make it a pickle. You put it in there and it stays under the water, submerged until it has been marinated long enough to become a pickle. Now, like you don't sprinkle some stuff on a cucumber and make it feet, and you then taste like a, a pickle. And you don't like pour some stuff over it and it all falls off and make it taste like a pickle. It has to marinate in it. The, the concept is that it's placed into, it's submerged under that solution so it can marinate and become a pickle. Baptizo, baptism, baptized, has the idea of placing under. And as the tradition has been, and as the tradition that we follow, when someone is baptized, we don't sprinkle them and we don't pour water on them. We go into a, the baptistry behind me. There's a little tank under here. We pull the, the beautiful oak up, and then inside of there, there's some stairs, and we walk down in there, and it's filled with hopefully clear water and hopefully warm water. Sometimes it's cold and sometimes it's cloudy, but the, the goal is clear and warm. We get in there, and, and, and one of the, the one that is proclaiming their relationship with Christ, they're placed under the water. We don't marinate them. We, we place them under the water, and we bring them up. The, the picture is this. Buried with him in baptism, raised in newness of life. Baptism is an outward manifestation of an inward reality, something that's already taken place in a person's life. Baptism is a symbol and that symbolism is of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And even more specifically, my participation, my union with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. It's not just a picture, okay, Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. That's one element of the picture. But the fact that I've been placed into Christ, and in his death, I was in him. And in his burial, I was in him. And in his resurrection, I was in him. I am a participant in the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what baptism is. This is the glory of baptism. It's a symbol. It's, it's a glorious ceremonial symbolism of what God does in a person's life, a, a sinner like me and maybe a sinner like you. A believer's participation in baptism symbolizes what God has already accomplished in his life. 
through what the Bible calls regeneration. Regeneration. What is regeneration? It's the impartation of life. Well, you, I was already alive. What do you mean? What do you mean? Giving me life. I, I already have breath in my lungs, and, and I can think with my brain, and I can talk with my mouth. I already have life. No, what, remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus? If you want to enter into the kingdom, if you want to enter into heaven, you must be born again. Well, what do you mean? Well, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. There are natural births, right? And then there's a spiritual birth. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The, the wind goes where it wills, and we don't know where it comes from and where it goes. And you can't control the wind, but we know it's there. And so also does the Spirit move. And so the Spirit brings forth life. What kind of life? Well, the Bible lets us know that in our natural condition, we are spiritually dead. We're born into this world well, born alive, that's great. We're born cute, that's also wonderful. We're born uh, with, with natural gifts and, and things that we can offer to the world. These are all good things. Spiritually, however, we have a problem. We're born spiritually dead, which is why in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse, uh, verse 1, he says, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. Then he goes on to talk about all the ramifications of that. In God's Sovereign goodness, mercy, grace, and love. I know that's a, that's a mouthful. In God's sovereign goodness, mercy, grace, and love, he produces life. And here's what it says a little bit later in Ephesians chapter 2. It says this, will be on the screen. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. He's made us alive together with Christ. The way that's constructed is, is it, it's not just, okay, he's alive and you're alive. There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a union that takes place. There's a connection that takes place. When God gives us life, he, he gives us spiritual life. We've been born naturally, born physically. Great. But... In that natural born condition, I am spiritually dead and I am, I am in deep need, was, I was in deep need, and maybe you were in deep need or maybe you still are in deep need. I'm in deep, deep need for God to make me spiritually alive. That comes by His Spirit. That's called regeneration, giving us new life. It's spoken of this way in Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. He saved us. God saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to our, uh, His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration. There's our term, regeneration, making alive, and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And so God gives life. You're in Romans chapter 6. And so I, I did that long introduction to get us to this point. Because we want to make sure we understand what's taking place in Romans chapter 6. We're born spiritually dead, we're born alive physically, born spiritually dead. We're helpless and hopeless because dead people can't do anything about their condition. They wish that they could, maybe, but they don't, can't even think to wish. So they probably don't even wish anymore. Uh, a dead person doesn't wish anything. We need an absolute miracle of God, a supernatural intervention. God does this. He makes us alive together with him. 
This is a work of the Spirit regenerating us. And so now we're in Romans chapter 6. Take a look beginning in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So now we start chapter 6 and he opens up with these couple of verses. Now we're going to get to the baptism concept in just a minute. But why does he start chapter 6 like this? Well, he's been telling he's been telling the Roman church and us that salvation, justification or righteousness comes by faith in Christ. And he talks about how sin it, it's exceedingly sinful. We see that from, from the reality of what God has said. Sin has become exceedingly sinful. And the more I see what God has to say, the more I recognize my sin. And where sin increases, grace abounds. And so Paul does a little bit of, uh, okay, preventative maintenance. Why do we do preventative maintenance? Well, you don't change the oil in your car. Eventually, your, your oil is going to get dirty. It's going to start damaging your engine. Eventually, uh, all the oil will, will kind of dissipate to the point of nothing. Your engine will just blow up. Not, not a good thing. So you change your oil, preventative maintenance. Paul can see, and he's inspired by the Spirit, if, if we don't give a clear picture, people will take the statement where sin increases, grace abounds. Oh, well, God is glorified by an abundance of His grace, and so I know what I'll do. I'm going to get God really be glorified, and I'm going to really sin a lot. There are people that have subscribed to that theory throughout um, the church history, and, and it's just against Scripture. And so Paul starts Romans chapter 6 and says, all right, because of this, should we just abundantly sin so grace may abound? And he starts off with a Greek expression. Ready? Meganoita. Two words in the Greek. May, don't. Genoita, let it be. In the King James, it's, it's, it's kind of given some, some further body, and it says, God forbid. In our scriptures, it says, by no means. Uh, literal translation, let it never be. Let it never be that we think, well, God will be glorified by abounding in grace if I'll just live my life in sin. He says, no, 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 no. Let it never be. And then he gives us some rationale for it. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Well, that's kind of confusing, isn't it? Because I, I think, you know, maybe even this morning I probably sinned. In fact, I, I know I did. I'm not proud of that. I can think of my own attitude not being right and having to deal with it between the Lord and I. Maybe you've had a similar experience this morning where you didn't like the way that someone spoke to you, didn't like what happened, someone on the road on the way here, someone when you got in the building, whatever the case may be, you're, you're a sinner. And so sometimes instead of yielding to the Spirit, you yield to your flesh and you sin. But he just said we're dead to sin. Well, what does he mean by that? And he starts to give us a picture of that beginning in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him 
in a resurrection like his. And so what Paul starts to say is, something happened inside of you when you came to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. When he talks about being united together with Christ or dying with Christ and being raised with Christ in other texts of Scripture, what he's saying is, uh, there's been a spiritual union or connection, a union that cannot be broken. I have been placed, and it says it in this text in verse 3, into Christ Jesus. I've been placed into Christ Jesus. No one can remove me from that blessed condition of being placed into Christ Jesus. Now this doesn't happen by water baptism. It happens when we come to know Christ as our Savior, and this, what water baptism pictures, takes place spiritually. So there's a physical element of water baptism, what is external, but first there's a spiritual element of what water baptism pictures, and that is a union with Christ where I have died with Him and been raised to newness of life. So what exactly does he mean by dying with Christ and being dead to sin? As he further develops in the rest of chapter 6, we're not going to take the time to delve into it, just, just so that we don't leave you on a cliffhanger with it. What he's talking about is the fact that the controlling mastery or dominance of sin has been broken in our lives. Sin has no right to be our master any longer. Anytime sin masters me, it's not because it had the authority to do so. It's because I've said, what would you like me to do, sir? And I followed suit. It's a willing surrender of my will, not a condition whereby I must follow. This is the glory of having died to sin. Sin no longer has a right to rule over me. When it rules over me, it's because I chose to allow sin to rule over me. This is what happens when a person's born again. We, we, we go from spiritually dead to spiritually alive. Now, in our spiritually alive condition... While I, in, in my flesh, am not perfected, I have spiritual life, and that spiritual life enables the breaking of sin's power over me. And so, Paul talks to this, about this, and he relates it to this term of baptism. He says, this baptism that takes place in your spirit is the baptism that is reflected in water baptism. Now, he doesn't use the terms that way, but let me remind you of another text of Scripture just for a moment. Peter talks similarly about baptism in 1 Peter chapter 3. He's talking about how Jesus suffered once for all for us, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the spirit. Uh, in, in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So he talks about Jesus suffering for us. And he goes on and talks about what happened to him after his, his death and burial, how he went and preached to those that were in prison, the spirits that were in prison. Then it talks about some spirits from the day of Noah. Spirits from the day of Noah. These people that were alive. When you think about Noah, you think about the flood, Correct? And he talks about how baptism saves us. He uses that terminology. He says, in like manner or in like figure, baptism saves us. He doesn't say baptism saves us. He says, in like figure, baptism saves us. So I want you to think through the, the Noah account for a second. The water of Noah's day, what was it for? Was it to save the people? What was the water? It was judgment. 
and, and that judgment was going to bring forth what? Death. The water brought death. Baptism doesn't produce life. The water produces death. He goes on to say, it's not the cleansing of the flesh. It's not the removal of the dirt of the flesh. That's not what saves you. What was the salvation in Noah's day? What was it? The ark was the element of salvation. Everyone outside of the ark perished in the judging, judging waters of the flood. Everyone inside the ark was saved because the ark was the designed salvation for the people. God was the Savior. God used the means of the ark. And the ark then pictures some kind of a salvation from the waters. Anyone have any suggestion as to what that ark might be pointing to us in terms of salvation? It's not a, about a ceremony. It's about the Jesus of what the ceremony points to. So Jesus then is the corresponding figure to the ark. He's the one that saves us and brings us up out of the watery judgment of death. We've got died with him in baptism and raised in newness of life. And so baptism is picturing this union that we have because of Jesus Christ. At the moment a person trusts Jesus as their Savior, God places that person into union with Jesus Christ. You can look at that at another time in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 14. It talks about how we're, the Spirit baptizes us into one body. This is a work of God. So, with that being said, we've talked quite a bit about these figures. Who should be baptized? And we're not going to be able to cover all of the verses I'll have on the screen. Maybe you, if you're taking notes, you can write some of them down. Um, I do want to cover a couple of the verses. First of all, we have to notice this. The one who has come to trust Jesus Christ, here noted the believer, must be baptized. The one who has come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior must be baptized. Look please with me at the book of Acts chapter 2. You're in Romans, so just take a left and head over to the next book to your left. Now in Acts chapter 2, we both have a command and an illustration of baptism. A command and an illustration. Now we're not going to plumb the depths of this verse because it, it does produce a little bit of extra study that is needed. We will make reference again to verse 38 in a few moments. But in, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, the Bible says this. He, Peter just preached to them all about how the people rejected God and how Jesus was the, the, the Messiah that was to come. The people recognize the problem and they say, what must we do? What do we do now with the fact that we've rejected the Messiah? Peter says in verse 20, uh, 38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Here's his call. Repent and be baptized. Repent so that you can have your sins removed. Be baptized as a demonstration of it. That is an explanation of that passage. Verse 41 then illustrates what the responsiveness of the people says. In verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. In chapter 8, again it is illustrated. Look at Acts chapter 8 for a moment. In Acts chapter 8, look please at verse 12. 
So Philip the evangelist is going about, he's preaching, and in verse 12 it says, But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So here's here's Philip preaching about Jesus Christ and the, the manifestation of the kingdom that comes as the Messiah appears. He's preaching about Jesus Christ and the gospel, and people believe the the gospel are saved, and then they're baptized. Look at the end of the chapter in verse 36. You know the account of the Ethiopian eunuch. He's driving, riding along, reading Isaiah. doesn't know what he's talking about. I wish someone would tell me what, it, what, what this is about. Philip starts running up alongside of him. says, hey, do you understand what you're reading? Hey, no, as a matter of fact, I don't. And so Philip gets into the chariot and, and communicates the things about Jesus Christ from the, the book of Isaiah to, the, to Philip, and, and he trusts Christ. Look at verse 36 now. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, So, or see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. goes on and talks about others being uh, preached the gospel, you know, having the gospel preached to them. It, it, it's, it, this is good. So what we have here is a command from Acts chapter 2. We have... Illustration in Acts 2, Acts 8, again in Acts 9, 10, and 18. It's all over the place, this illustration of it. It's an illustration, or, or it's illustrated that the people that heard the gospel, embraced the gospel, were then baptized. It was commanded by the Lord Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. Remember, he says, um, I have, uh, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, do what? Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And he talks about the fact that he would be with them to the end of the age. The, the believer, someone who's trusted the gospel, someone who's come to know that Jesus paid the price for their sin, and that there's no other way to heaven but through Jesus Christ. That a person has embraced that salvation offered through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That person must be baptized. The Bible calls for it. Now, just briefly, um, baptism is powerless to save. That is very important to notice because some take statements about baptism and make baptism a necessary requirement for salvation. Baptism is a necessary requirement after salvation in obedience to the Lord. But baptism cannot accomplish salvation. It doesn't save some point to Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, just linguistically, it doesn't work um, to, to make that an argument that baptism is part of salvation. You don't really want that explanation now. If you'd like so, some conversation with me, I'd be glad to point it out to you from, from your, your Bible text, how to read that, to understand that the baptism is not a necessary component of your salvation. The problem with, with believing that baptism is necessary for salvation is justifying it from all of Scripture. The onus for some, is, is for someone to prove that point throughout the Bible. And the Bible is very clear how salvation comes. Take a look at Acts chapter 3 just for a moment. In Acts chapter 3, in verse 19, now the one who was associated, the, the texts of Scripture that are associated with being what's called baptismal regeneration, are authored by Peter. The Apostle Peter. In Acts 2.38 and in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21. Peter is the, the human penman of those texts. 
So they say that Peter is preaching salvation by faith in Christ and baptism. However, when you come to Acts chapter 3, the, the speaker, the preacher, is Peter. And listen to how, what he tells the people to do concerning their sin. Verse 19 of Acts chapter 3. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. If you were to read further from there, he doesn't talk about baptism. His message to them for their salvation is, repent, repent, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. What does it mean to repent? Here's my sin, here's my way, here's everything that I enjoy, everything I covet, everything about my life that I love. I enjoy these things. God says, turn from what gives you joy to what will satisfy you forever. Turn from your way and your sinfulness and turn to Jesus who gives real life and real sustenance and real satisfaction and joy eternal. Repent and have your sins forgiven. When it comes to Paul, he says, um, in answer to the Philippian jailer's uh, question, what must we do to be saved? He says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Remember that? Very clear, Acts chapter 6 and verse 31. In Romans 10, he talks about um, with the heart and tongue. With the heart, confession is uh, belief, and with the tongue, confession is made. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, this glorious depiction of the gospel, here's what Paul says in verse, verses 3 and 4. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. It talks about the Gospel. And the Gospel does not include baptism. The baptism, baptism, on the other hand, talks about the Gospel. Do you know that? Baptism points to the gospel. The gospel doesn't point to baptism. There's a huge difference. Baptism declares the gospel. This is what God has done in me. Inside of me, when I came to know Christ as my Savior, I was placed into Christ in his death. The death that he died is my death. The judgment he took was my judgment. I am a participant in his death and the judgment and then in the resurrection to life. What does baptism look like? That's what we've been talking about. Death and resurrection. There's only one mode of baptism that depicts that. Placing one under the water and bringing one out of the water. Immersion, which is what the term baptizo means in the first place, is the picture of baptism. What is the purpose of baptism? As we discussed at the start, it is symbolism. It is symbolism. It is an outward display of an inward reality. What happened at the time that you came to know Christ as your Savior is God removed your sin and gave you life. It is also a public testimony. It's showing what God has done, taking you from an old man filled with old ways and making you a new man filled with new ways. The old is gone, the new has come. This is what baptism pictures. It also is accomplishing obedience. 
obedience. God has called us to do this. He's told those that have trusted Christ to obey him by being baptized. And finally, it produces identification. Well, what do you mean by identification? Well, think of it this way. When you, when a husband and a wife get married, now this is, this is an older tradition, not everyone follows suit with all of this. I like the tradition, I think it is emblematic of what actually takes place. When two people get married, a woman takes on the name of her husband. There's a new identity there, because these two people have become one flesh. And so now we, instead of having two last names, two different last names, now we have one last name, and we all have these, these things that symbolize it. We have these identifying marks. I'm married. I belong to her. She belongs to me. These tokens are all saying that there's, there's identification. Well, this is exactly what baptism does. When a person says, yes, I've, I've trusted Christ as my Savior, and I want to be baptized, they're saying, I want the world to know. I want everyone who's willing to, to watch. I want them to know what has happened to me. I've been placed into Christ. The old me, the, the, the things I used to treasure, those are not the things that are of most importance to me. Uh, that person is dead. I've been raised in newness of life. I am a Christian, a follower of Christ. He is my life. He is my satisfaction. He is my joy. And I want you to know what He's done for me and what He can do for you. This is what baptism does. It, it identifies us with the person of Jesus Christ. So, that was, that was a, to get us to this point. If you have come to know Jesus as your Savior, God has granted you new, spiritual, eternal life. The Bible declares that this gracious gift of life is displayed through baptism. If you have received this spiritual life, you should be baptized. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? All right. I'm not going to have you bow your heads. I'm not going to have you close your eyes. If you've trusted Jesus Christ and have not already followed the Lord in believer's baptism, and you would like to, you'd like to make the decision to follow the Lord in believer's baptism because you've already been saved, will you raise your hand nice and high and proud? Not proud, I've done something great, but God has done something great, and I want to let the world know. That's awesome. Keep, keep your hands up. There's, there's no, you should be proud of God's working. This is exactly what baptism is about. God has saved me, and I want you to know God has saved me. This is glorious. You don't have to look around, but I would just tell you, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight people, I believe, that raise their hand to say, hey, I want you to know God has saved me. This, this is what baptism is for. It's a symbol of what God has done. 